0: The B.S. Report is a free-flowing conversation that occasionally touches on mature subjects. The B.S. Report. The B.S. Report with Bill Simmons.
1: to well, the B.S. Report, a hazy Tuesday here uh, in Southern California. As promised, Chuck Klosterman on the line. Uh, one of our, probably has done the most B.S. reports of anyone I didn't go to college with, I'm going to say. I'm gonna say you've done like 25. Is that possible?
2: Uh, well, what about uh? Oh, Sal. He's a little Low. He's done a lot of those.
1: Yeah, Zach's done a lot. I guess Sal. All right, I take it back. Well, you're in the top 10. How yeah, are you? you,
2: he's going everywhere. Good. I'm. I'm great. How are um, you doing it? You, you're sick. You sound a little. I'm bit sick, Ill- but
1: I'm gonna. I'm gonna get through it. Um, lots going on. As always, we need we need your uh your counsel and your brain for for everything. I don't even know where to begin. I guess we could start with uh Mayweather Pacquiao. Did you get the fight?
2: You know, I didn't. I I, uh, I did not watch it. Uh, I was interested in it kind of as an idea, but I didn't actually pay for it and watch it. Um, I'm always uh, kind of intrigued by the reaction to any of these things. You know, it's uh, I, it seemed like the, the overriding response was neither of these guys was trying to get hurt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's how, we, you know, It's it's like boxing is brutal, boxing is brutal, boxing is brutal. Why aren't those guys more brutal? It Seems to always be the result of when people actually fight.
1: Right. It, it felt like an exhibition, and now I don't. I don't know what to believe because now Manny's saying he has a torn rotator cuff and has to have surgery, and there might be a rematch. It all feels very WWE. I don't like any of it. I gotta say, yeah.
2: It. You know. It. The whole thing. Uh, the whole. I mean, the entire thing. I'm not just saying the fight. I'm saying the many years leading up to it. Uh, um it did seem like uh it's very far removed from sports that it's just kind of this this unique revenue stream that boxing has and i mean it made so much money it's in some ways you know boxing has just disappeared from the landscape and yet you see the money they made from this it's almost like is boxing the one sport doing this right that they can sort of have these you know have these events and that that covers everything and I mean, the guys were old. I mean, they're not, not to say that they couldn't fight anymore, but you know, they were much older than they should have been when they fought. Yeah.
1: I think it's interesting that Floyd has figured out how to kind of skip the middleman, which some people have done, like you know, totally different um, venue, venue or whatever. But Louis C.K. I think has has figured out in his own way how to do that too. You know, he's he goes right to the buildings. He sells out his own stuff. He posts his concerts on his own website and has figured out how to basically send the revenue stream toward him. And it's kind of what Floyd did with this fight, I felt like. He he figured out how to cut out as much of the middleman as he possibly could, which never happens in boxing. You know what I mean?
2: It feels like the main takeaway from this whole thing will be that it has galvanized the belief that uh, Meriwether's a terrible person and has sort of amplified or jump-started this idea that he's a genius. But these are the two things that people seem to remember about him now, that 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 all this stuff about the domestic abuse and uh, there's something seems like almost unique or new about, you know, his relationship to money and self-promotion.
1: Yeah. I wonder if he, he, there was some point in his life when he just realized that he was going to embrace the villain and get attention that way. And it reminds me of Dennis Rodman in the mid nineties when, Rodman started coloring his hair and acting weird. Like he, he led the league in rebounds a couple of times, but nobody cared. And then he dyed his hair and people started caring. And then he got more and more tattoos. People cared. He started dating celebrities and kind of started, uh, I don't know. He, he'd created this alter ego basically. And it worked. I mean,
2: I guess the difference is what, like what's the worst thing that Rodman did? You know, you could say, well, you know, uh, he, he, he kicked that cameraman. Um, or he, had a drinking problem or he was, you know, suicidal. Um, with Merriweather, you know, it's different. I mean like the worst things he done are much worse. So you know, so it's not it's less of a villainy construction as it is sort of almost an acceptance.
1: But at the same time he was the best boxer pound for pound, everybody thought so and nobody really cared or had an opinion on it. And it only was when he started doing all that money stuff that You know, he got noticed, and he became this polarizing figure. There was nothing polarizing about him in the mid two thousands. He was just this guy that boxing fans revered, and nobody else really had an opinion on. You know, and unlike Rodman, he, you know, he not only has a has better villain tendencies, but also had, as you said, a couple incidents that make him even more unlikable. And now you have the Ray Rice video, and it's like this perfect storm. I I can't remember a less popular great athlete. I'm sure. I'm sure there's been people, but it it seems like if you're going to do low approval rating for athletes, he's got to be near the bottom, right, of anyone we grew up with or have watched since we were adults?
2: Yeah, well, in, I mean, in that regard, he really is sort of pushing people to dislike him. I mean, when people question him about the domestic abuse and the response is, no pictures? Yeah. When you say there's no pictures, you're saying it happened, but there are no pictures. So it's it's not as though uh he he is like he, I think there's been lots of people who sort of like the idea of being hated or whatever, but this is different. I mean, he's essentially saying that, you know, I'm, I'm, a, uh, I'm against society, like the rules of society I'm breaking uh, as part of my boxing promotion.
1: Yeah, and I think the way he treats people which I, I've heard all kinds of different stories about the people like either in his life and security guards and whoever. Um, he lives up to the villain uh, aspect with all that stuff too. And I had Kimmel on yesterday because Kimmel went to the fight and was in Pacquiao's entourage. And he was talking about all, every security guard was rooting for Manny and they all hated Floyd. And it made me think like, this is just, this is a guy who just seems to embrace being unlikable. That's just who he is. He's really a sports movie character. You almost wouldn't believe the sports movie character, right? He's like, it's, it's like what clubber lag was in Rocky three, but so much deeper and so much more going on with, with him and the decisions he's made. I'm amazed, but I'm just amazed by how, how fine he is with being disliked. You know, Uh,
2: You know, though I suppose, you know, you can, Kind of insulate yourself in your own world, like in the silo he exists in. Uh, you know, I'm sure it's it's you know, an entourage of stenophants and and people who use him for their uh, revenue streams and and uh, you know the kind of people who just do not care what kind of person you are. They just want to be around greatness. And everybody else, like this whole mass of humanity, they're just numbers, kind of like they right. they they are, they are. They have no relationship to him. So, uh, you know, he's almost, I think that, that, you know, I think we would both think to ourselves, oh, it would, it would bother me somehow to have everyone hate me. But uh, I think that, that he doesn't think of the word everyone in the same way that we do.
1: Yeah, that's true. I mean, he does have, I've seen him at Clipper games. He has these four giant guys with him that stand behind him in the courtside seat during halftime, like anybody's going to bother Floyd Mayweather at a, at a Clipper game. It's all very strange.
2: Also, have I been kind of calling him Merryweather through this whole podcast? I guess it should be... I'm, I'm saying his name wrong, aren't I? Yeah,
1: it's Mayweather.
2: Yeah, I know, but I, I think I've been saying Merryweather for some
1: reason. Oh, I thought it was you were doing some weird Dakota accent thing. I think no, no, Mayweather,
2: I think I was but... just saying it wrong.
1: <laughs> Wait, so earlier in the earlier when we were talking, you mentioned how people, people think boxing's too brutal and then this fight wasn't brutal enough and how hypocritical that was. Don't you think it's interesting that we spent these last four or five years just going nuts about concussions and sports and, you know, whether it's football or soccer or hockey, whatever. Um, concussion awareness has been a big thing and, and people are always so worried about the safety of NFL players. And then this fight comes along. And everyone's like, hey, boxing, let's watch these guys beat the crap out of each other. Are we just all hypocrites?
2: I, I just think boxing is viewed as different. It just views as, if, if football is still part of culture. It's still part of society. I don't think boxing is viewed that way anymore. I, I, uh, I, I'm, I think that's for, for a variety of reasons, that is. I mean, it's, it's very easy to avoid boxing, whereas those other sports are harder to avoid. The other sports also make such an effort to get casual fans involved. Yeah. You know, convincing people to play fantasy football or whatever, and suddenly then they're confronted with this thing on HBO telling them, you know, they're watching real sports and they're like, Oh, am I somehow complicit to, in this? You know. But boxing's not like that. I mean, uh there are people who like describe themselves as a casual boxing fan. But I think all that means is that when a fight like this one happens, um, if they know someone bought it on pay per view, they will go to his house. it, yeah. it it's, it's it's there's just not a, a there's not a, a casual sort of relationship to
1: it. You watch a ton of college football. The draft just happened, and Winston and Mariota were the top two picks. And Winston, the Bucks made a big deal about how they talked to seventy-five people in his life, and um, then other people said, "Well, why didn't you talk to the woman who accused him of sexual assault?" and it just kind of it was this sub thing going on during the whole Mayweather thing and he's the number one pick and they keep talking about off field issues and it's code for hey, this guy was accused of, of a sex crime and the administration decided that there wasn't enough evidence, which I guess is a really great way to say off field issues. But don't you think it's strange? Like you have a franchise number one overall pick franchise quarterback. It's like the ultimate hope. You know, Andrew Luck, Peyton Manning, these guys that come into the draft and it's like, Oh my god, my football life's gonna be different for fifteen years. This is gonna be amazing. And now you have if you're a Tampa fan, you've never had a great quarterback. You have this guy who everybody says he just has it. He's just special. He just has a charisma about him. And yet he has all this baggage stuff. Like, like if you were a Bucks fan, how would you feel about rooting for this guy?
2: Um well, I, I mean, I didn't root for him in college. I don't know why I would start rooting for him in the NFL. I mean, you're kind of you're kind of creating this scenario where it's like, okay, assume I'm already invested in yes. the success of the bucket.
1: It's a hypothetical.
2: Yeah. Um, well, I think that you uh, will probably be a better pro than Mariota. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, I think I would probably. I don't think I'd ever get on the bandwagon. I mean, I don't even know if it's if it's, it's not just the singular sort of accusation of the sexual assault. It, it seems to be just sort of the person that he is, which is uh, accentuated by the way he kind of delivers interviews uh, as if he is the nicest person, kind of the most. Uh, you know kind of playful uh kind of loquacious character I mean you know it's it's one thing if if a guy when when you see him in a press conference kind of seems kind of sullen and seems yeah. kind of dark, and then you kind of compare it with uh you know the things you hear about him off the field and you're like well, maybe he just is a, is a he comes from a a different world where where maybe the things that he values and his understanding of how the world works is different. But when he acts so like I'm your buddy and I'm just you know so talkative and so kind, I'm joking around, I'm making references to Johnny Manziel and all of these things, then you hear these other things. It makes these actions seem conscious in a way that's much more troubling. That's yeah. sort of like he's, he, is, he has the ability to sort of project this false image of who he is and then live this life simultaneously. So not only is he kind of a bad person, but he seems like the hypocrite. I guess that's what I don't like about him. I I almost feel as though I would be less against him
1: uh, if he uh, if he's seemed more genuine like, seemed like a jerk. <laughs> right. If he embraced his inner Floyd. I don't know what to make of him because I, I feel like I'd be a hypocrite if I didn't mention. Um, I, I do think we should cut people slack when they're in college to a little bit because I think everybody's an idiot in college. I'm not talking about the sexual assault stuff, but mm-hmm. all the all the other stuff he did, um, these guys are idiots. Like, I, I was an idiot in college. That's kind of what happens in college, and I'm not, I'm not sure that means, if, if it was just the other stuff, I'm not like the crab legs and things like that. I'm not sure that would make me pause, but then you had the other piece in it, and uh, I don't know, I have a tough time with that story. Because- well, you know,
2: the, the crab legs thing, it's very possible that that was not the first time a member of that football team believed they were getting something for free at a grocery store. I would guess that that is probably not uncommon. Yeah. Um, in terms of jumping up on the table and saying something, you know, idiotic, kind of reflecting this meme in the culture, um, that seems, I, I didn't even think, that, that just seems like something that, that, that popular college kids might do. You know, kind of, like that, that, that didn't seem weird to me at all. I guess it does seem weird that there's a whole series of these things um that are happening with his full awareness that this could, you know, damage a a, a dream life, you know. Yeah. So it's either that he uh doesn't seem to care about that dream life, which doesn't seem to be the case. It seems like he's interested in, in succeeding and being famous. Um, or he believes that nothing he does will have. Consequences. Um, and it's, I can understand why one might come to that conclusion, having a, had the, you know, it's, it, looking back on how his life has worked, I can see where he might have a skewed vision of what happens if you do terrible things. Right. Mm. I I, just, uh... as, as a player, you know, it, I think we've talked about this before. I do think that it does sort of resemble Dante Culpepper. And I think that's just a strange comparison because Dante Culpepper also sort of had both kind of poles of greatness and being terrible. You know, like, I, like right. is it a compliment to say someone's the next Dante Culpepper? I'm not sure.
1: He had a couple of great seasons and then he had a couple of bad ones, too. It, the draft is, uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty crazy that, like, these are the top two picks, the top two quarterbacks. Um, alleged franchise quarterbacks, and you just don't know. It's like it, it, it's like you're in Vegas playing, I don't know, whatever poker, and you have an eighty percent chance to win the hand. So you go in like eighty percent's a great chance, but <laughs> really never, other than I guess luck, may have been like ninety five percent. I guess Manning was like ninety five percent, but. Man, it, the the quarterback, the franchise quarterback thing can go wrong in so many ways. I mean, there's been so many of them that have failed, and the pressure of being the savior and having that bullseye on your fact, your your back, and having to be the leader of the team when you're 22, I do think it's a lot to ask, and I, I do think that's part of the reason a lot of these guys have failed. I don't know what's going to happen with him. I mean, if he's as immature as he was in college in his rookie year, and he's throwing the ball up for grabs, like everybody talks about how he uh. You know he's not careful with the football, which is the yeah. worst thing you can be in the pros like he might just be terrible next year and it, and he might have a couple more things, and then all of a sudden we'll be talking about him like he's Jamarcus Russell,
2: or yeah, he could well, come
1: in and be great I don't know
2: It, it would be awesome if you know Marcus Mariota was great, but the thing that makes me nervous about him is okay, you already say how you know they always talk about the system he plays in. Quarterback, you know, not being under center, and not really calling plays, and all of these things coming from Oregon, but kind of like in a, you know, when you kind of even look at a, from a larger kind of point, I mean, Oregon's been good now for how many years? More than ten? Have they been good for fifteen years? Could we say now that they've been had a pretty good program?
1: Yeah, it seems who's like it, At best, least
2: 15. O- who's the best offensive player they have produced? I guess it would be Legarrette Blount. Wow, you'd think. It, 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 I mean, who's better? Am I missing somebody? I might be. I'm just kind of saying this off my head so I could be wrong. But I can't remember anybody that they produced. You know, maybe, maybe there's a lineman that I'm missing or something. Um, it seems odd that you could have a program that good without, by chance, producing a whiteout or something. It was a bunch of big years or, or, or something. You know? So it, if if Marietta ends up being as great as he seems to have the potential to be, he'll be not only the first kind of quarterback from there that that where this worked but the first player where this worked from that right. system you know um, and it, then also i guess it depends do you think like wisenhunt will change his offense now that he has him because he obviously doesn't want to run the kind of system in tennessee that would take advantage of his gifts
1: well you know where i stand i always think they should you should graft your football system around the players you have, not just have a system and tell people to run it. Yeah. So do you they think he'll do that space. though? Do you think I that will know. happen? He certainly doesn't have a good track record with young QBs. I uh I the most telling thing for me with Mariota was that Chip Kelly offered by all accounts a pretty a pretty luxurious package for him. You know, it was like two first rounders, a couple more draft picks, Sam Bradford, a couple players. Um, and he coached him. So, you know, I think the fact that he was kind of inside, behind the curtain with Mariota and actually saw how he handled himself day after day and how he handled himself in practice with his teammates, and he was so gung-ho and trying to get him, was interesting to me. That made me think he's going to be good. I don't know. I mean, certainly Chip Kelly's been all over the map, but the fact that Chip Kelly felt that strongly about it, you know, the Celtics had the same thing. Like, Brad Stevens really wanted to get Gordon Hayward a year ago, and... You know, because he'd been with him, He loves Gordon Hayward. And then Gordon Hayward stayed in Utah Had a really good year. I think he made a step up. But, like, you know, I, I do think there's something to it. It'll be interesting. Mariota yeah, I mean, versus Kelly's Winston. Kind
2: of, Kelly is all over the map, kind of, but I would say near the upside more than the downside of that map. I mean, he kind of makes strange moves, but thus far, yeah. um, you know, in, when, that first year he seemed like he drafted guys who he had played against in the Pac-12. Like, he didn't draft his own guys. He drafted guys that he had seen, uh, you know, that he'd watched on film, I guess, a lot. But I can see what this guy can do.
1: That's always dangerous.
2: Well, although, to me, less dangerous than a guy who drafts his own players, even though, I mean, like, that's kind of what Jimmy Johnson did in Dallas, and that worked. But for the most part, I would think a guy who drafts the people he played against means that he consistently saw them causing a problem on film that he was like, this will be a problem for anyone. Whereas yeah. the guys you're actually with, yeah, I'm sure you get emotional ties and you think to yourself, well, you know, I, I've seen him do this one specific thing. If I can get this
1: one specific thing into our system, that will work. I sort
2: of thought the idea of him picking opponents was a reflection of him being smart,
1: but The Patriots do something interesting. They and this is something they've started doing the last few years. They like getting guys who are like leaders of their team. They took this safety from Stanford in round two, who Kuiper was just stupefied. He thought he should have gone fourth or fifth round, and like, of course, the guys like was a captain at Stanford, three year starter. And it just seems like the Patriots like having these guys who have been in winning programs, putting them in theirs. Guys who have had success. I don't know if that's a strategy that uh, could be copied, but I do like how some of these different teams have like these little quirks that they seem to drift toward in the draft. I. I, I watch the draft every year, and I, I don't even know why. <laughs> because I, I'm just like, oh wow, speed receiver sounds great. Like you just don't know. It's 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 the dumbest but most enjoyable thing. I think the most dumbest but most enjoyable four hours of TV. It is it's like,
2: weird, you know, and it. It's like that is one event that you totally can follow on the internet because you can yeah. imagine in your mind a man in a suit coming up to a podium. Now a bigger man is coming on stage to shake his hand. But when I'm home, I watch it too. I don't know why. I guess it's 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 a, you know it's just a continuation of unknown moments, <laughs> you right. know, and that doesn't happen very often in television.
1: I think it's fascinating that these guys know this much about the draft because you're talking about knowing everything there is to know about. 250 guys something like that. I and I've done the NBA draft for the last 2 years and really you know, you're talking about 30 guys. You have to and, and and even like slicing it down. You really want to be prepared for about 15 guys. Then the next 15 guys, you want to know something about them. And then when you get to the second round, you're you're just talking about little thumbnails for each guy and every year I've had a couple sleepers things like that. For football though, I think it's so hard to just on the fly you know, somebody be drafted. Kuiper has to remember the team he's going to, what their needs are, how they how they would use a player like him. Is this guy good? How did he do, you do it in the combine? It, it's like, do you think there's anything left in his brain to even think about anything else? Like, does he watch Game of Thrones? What does Buck Kuyper do twenty four hours a day?
2: Yeah, I I don't know. I, I I suppose it's just you know, if that's the only thing you think about, and you're essentially with all these guys, no matter where it, whether it's Kuyper or anybody from any magazine, it's always like, here's the player, here's his four or five best ad attributes, here are the two or three knocks against him. Um, yeah. I suppose, you know, you, you talk to uh, people who have watched him play, and they all kind of roughly say the same thing. And the only thing about draft analysis uh, years later are the things that seemingly make no sense. Like I remember, there was a, a when Carl Malone was getting drafted. Right. I remember people mentioned how one of the details, one of the, the things that they said was his problem was low vertical jump. That he wasn't a good enough jumper, which seemed to have essentially no impact on his career whatsoever in right. any situation. You know, but yeah, all they, the other details about him, I don't remember what they said.
1: Yeah, and that was a weird year because everybody was trying to get centers because like the center was a big big thing at that point. Everybody was trying to load up on centers. All of a sudden, Karl Malone drops to, to whatever. My thing is if it's a forward like that, putting up 27 and 10 or whatever he was doing in college, odds are he's not going to be a bust. I always think it's funny when the guys – at like after everybody misses on Karl Malone – and then a few years later, there was a guy, Randy White, who was terrible. And they're like, he's the next Carl Malone. Like they, that, that's another thing with the draft. They have to like compartmentalize all these different people. What TV are you watching?
2: Well, okay. I, I want to talk about television, but there's one thing I want to ask you sports-wise first
1: before we go okay. over there. Let's do it.
2: Um, I'm, I guess, from, from what I've heard you say elsewhere, that, that you would like to see a rule change in terms of the intentional following. Uh, you know, early in early in quarters and all that. The hack a shack, hack yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. Um. So, what do you propose that they do? Like, I mean, I I think that that I, I I've been intrigued by seeing like you know Adam Silver talk about this and and sort of the number of people who are pretty strongly against it um, for uh, like a very kind of almost ethical reason you know that, yeah. that we you know we must keep free throws in the game and it's something you can't just erase this part of the game um and yet if this is if we're viewing this as is and, and at the pro level it absolutely is a form of entertainment it makes the game um not necessarily less interesting but definitely less entertaining
1: so what do you think that they should do so initially i hated hack a shack hack a dj and i thought what they should do is Either interpret it differently, like they do with the clear path foul, or if you feel like somebody's being intentionally fouled away from the ball, you get a free throw and you get to keep the ball. Yeah. Um, And then I was thinking, could you do it where the team just gets to decline the foul, the foul shots? It's like, you know what, we're fine. We don't want the foul shots. We'll keep the ball. thought that would be interesting. But after watching that series and going to the Clippers-Spurs games.
2: You know, that scenario, though, creates uh, like almost a, even a more nightmarish possibility where say then uh, a team goes, okay, we're going to keep following him until you agree to let him shoot. And, you know, we're going to take, we're going to take the three guys, uh, you know, the end of our bench, we're going to use up 18 consecutive follows, you know, in a matter of three possessions, we're going to follow him two seconds into the shot clock every time until you agree. We're just going to let, you know, DeAndre shoot these or whatever. Uh, and, I mean, because that would seem like a farce.
1: Well, I'm I'm stubborn. I hate changing my mind on stuff. I felt pretty strongly that they should uh, come up with some rule because I just when something's not fun, you got to get rid of it. But you know, the more the more I watch and the more I talk to people and hear pr- different opinions, it's it's really only like seven or eight guys who can't shoot free throws who matter, especially in the playoffs. And you know, game seven. um it, it was a real part of the game and it shouldn't matter that DeAndre can't shoot free throws. And it it ended up, Doc did one of the ballsiest things I've seen him do. He took him out in the last five and a half minutes. He put in Matt Barnes and he went small, gave up defensive rebounding, gave up rim protection because he didn't want to risk having DeAndre on the other end. It was really, it wasn't just that he was missing the free throws, but it really knocked them out of the flow of their offense. And they had a nice rhythm going. And when you think about it that way, like he's a free agent coming up, right? Like he, let's say they created a rule that basically made his terrible free throw shooting irrelevant. Now all of a sudden you would pay him 120 million bucks. Yeah. Because, I, so I don't know if he should be rewarded for just being awful at free throws. Like, how about I mean, this? A, just make this
2: them. Is why it's comp- you know, and, and that's why, I mean, it doesn't make the case. Okay, it makes the game less entertaining, but it doesn't necessarily make it less interesting. That's a great example of it. I mean, that game seven was the best game that's been a while. Right. Yeah. Okay. And I think that's part of the reason why, because there was, uh, like this this chess element to it where you're removing one of your best guys uh, for this, you know, this this one flaw in his game. But, you know, if, uh, if a lot of players had one flaw that significant, they couldn't play either. Like if there was a guy who literally could not stop a guy from going baseline on him every time, you couldn't play him. You couldn't have him on the floor getting beat every possession. You know, like Scott, when, what,
1: Scott, Scott Van Pelt made this point. If a third baseman threw it into the stands every time somebody bunted,
2: mm-hmm.
1: should we then change the rule to help this guy? Yeah, no. How about this? Learn to throw to first base. So I've kind of come around. I actually, I hope they don't change it. It's terrible to watch. Um, maybe there's something where in the regular season they could come up with a wrinkle, but in the playoffs they don't change anything. But or what I, if I it didn't. was what if it was reverse? What if you couldn't do it in the flow of the game, but you
2: could do it during the last 3 minutes of the game? Hmm. So then you ha- you'd have to make the decision, are we going to leave the guy on the floor or not?
1: I I was very I had a column that went up today about Duncan and it was a little bit of a retro diary of that game. I was if DeAndre had been in and they had fouled them in the last 5 minutes of that game with how intense and electric that game was. I don't know where his free throws would have gone. I've seen him shoot some terrible ones. I've seen him hit the backboard and have it come off and not hit the rim. I've seen him air ball. I've seen him, I mean, I've seen him left, right. It doesn't matter. I think it was so tense in there. I really don't think there was any chance he would have made him. And then conversely, Duncan, who has always been kind of an up-and-down free throw shooter and in this series was 50% and just wasn't making them. There were line drives in the front of the rim. And then he gets fouled with eight seconds left and... Man, I mean, everybody's just going crazy, screaming at him, and and he just comes through with these two line drives that go in. It was just, he's just so funny. That was an incredible game. It really was. It was just incredible. It was one of the best games I've ever been to. Yeah,
2: uh, you know, I'm not a Clippers fan. I I find that team to be incredibly unlikable, but boy, just watching Chris Paul in that game is pretty amazing because not only can he obviously get his own shot, he can get a real good shot most yeah. of the time like he can uh, he can he can get the ball down where he's pulling up from nine feet and that last shot he made at the end uh, obviously that's not a uh, you know a traditional good shot but it's like it's a shot he could make I, I it uh, he, he just played great I mean that was that was the best I've ever seen him play
1: and Blake Griffin too who who um kind of became the guy I think every Clipper fan wanted him to be in these eight playoff games so far he was awesome last night too he's
2: yeah he, I mean, he's the least likable guy on the team,
1: but right. uh,
2: he is good now. And, and I used, you know, for for a period there, I think I might have even said this on one of these podcasts. It was like, I don't you can't hit jump shots. Why would you, you want know, to? But but now he can't. Like like he uh, he knocks down shots and he plays super hard, obviously. And you know,
1: uh, he's figured out how to use his athleticism in really competitive playoff games, which is kind of one of the last pieces for him. Like there were just there were moments in that game where he he just had the ball. He's like. I'm careening to the basket. I'm probably going to get fouled, you know. And before, especially his rookie or second year, he, his mindset was always, "I want to dunk on people. That's what I want to do. I want to, I want to dunk on somebody and be on YouTube. That's my goal." Now his goal is all centered around how can I win this game. And I, I got to say, I think he might have a higher ceiling than than I thought he did because watching him at the top of the key do, doing like basically point forward stuff. Um, only LeBron out of anybody that size can, can do the stuff that Blake does. So now I'm starting to wonder like...
2: Well, but he can't get that much better though because he's maxed out physically. And that's such a part of his game.
1: I know, but he's putting up 24 13 and 8. You know, like hey, you don't, you're not getting any better than that anyway. You know? Like, he's putting up huge numbers and he's getting to the basket. I'm thinking like you know, the Olympics is only two years away. The Olympic team is suddenly um... The, the whatever lineup we're going to have in that thing is is one of the secretly fascinating what ifs that's going to happen. You know, who starts in that team? Who's the crunch time guy? Does Curry start or Chris Paul start? Like, I don't remember having this many. What the hell are they going to do? Choices with an Olympic team. You know, every I, every four years, you always kind of know who the guys are. You know, now it's like, ooh, I don't even know.
2: It seems possible that in a, an Olympic situation you could move Curry over to two? Yeah. I think we'll play him with Paul. That's what I mean. That's what I would do. But, of course, I'm not in this position. Okay, Okay. so television now.
1: Yeah, television. Mad Men's got two episodes left.
2: Yeah. um, Well, you know, I want to preface what I'm about to say by saying Mad Men is my favorite show on. Right now it's the one I'm most interested in watching. I I think I've seen seen 98% of the entire run in real time. I watched it as it's happening. Um, but, uh, I really feel they're choking down the stretch here. I feel that this has been by far the weakest season of the show and that they have made some pretty big narrative mistakes. Um,
1: should we throw I, a spoiler I, alert right now? Let's do a little spoiler alert for people who aren't caught up on Mad Men. Spoiler alert. Okay, keep going.
2: Okay, but this, this I'm not even talking about, I, I won't think I'll say anything that specific. Uh, but what I'll say is this, is that, you know, that first season was really about Don and Peggy. And you had this great ensemble around them. And you'd be like, oh, this Joan character, great. I wish we could see a little more for her, every scene Rogers in. thats He's hilarious. And Pete Campbell, intriguing, you know. Um, but it was still basically about their two stories. And yeah. now all these peripheral characters have become, you know, people like them so much that it's almost as if uh, Matthew Weiner almost views like they all need to have some sort of kind of personal resolution. And the fact of the matter is, they're absolutely unstoppable as supporting players, but their own stories are not as good. It's like that there's the stuff about Joan this year has not been interesting uh, uh, Roger is not as uh, he doesn't bring things to scenes the way he used to because I, I just I feel like if they had made the story simpler and not had Don Draper have this existential crisis I, I think what they're doing with Peggy is pretty good, but I would have pretty much made this last season about those two people, and everybody else would just sort of contribute to their stories because I don't really feel like there has been an especially good episode during the final run. Some people really like the one from not the last one, but one previous to that. But I just don't see it. I just, you know, that used to be a show where even the week episodes were pretty great. And that has not been the case.
1: I think they made a crucial mistake when they split up the final season. And how many episodes did they end up doing like 14 instead of 10?
2: Yeah. There's seven in this one.
1: Yeah. And there's seven in the last one. And you know, this is a show that was I think cranking out ten seasons per or ten episodes per season. And that's how you get to what you just talked about, how the supporting characters are are kind of getting the ball too much. It's almost like if Doc Rivers was like, Hey, I'm gonna get Matt Barnes some shots. It's like, nah, Matt Barnes is we're good with Matt Barnes. He's just gonna run around and play defense and shoot a couple of threes. We don't wanna know Matt Barnes' story. Um I'm with you. I think I think Don and Peggy are the are the uh are, are the Chris Paul Blake, like those are your meal tickets. That's been the heart of the show this entire time and how she grew from in the last 10 years from what she was to what she is now, how it ties in with everything that was going on in America. And at the same time, how he kind of has his time has passed and he's becoming not cool. And that to me is the show. And I, I'm with you. I, Roger Sterling is fun. Like Roger Sterling comes off the bench and he gets a couple rebounds and makes you laugh and, then he goes away. I don't. I don't really need to, to deep, dive deep into Roger Sterling.
2: Yeah, the, the the layoff between like breaking the season up, that didn't bother me so much. I mean, like it does seem that there is uh, there was the at least the uh, the indication that a lot happened in that gap. That sort of their business changed entirely or whatever. Um, yeah. It, it more has to do with it, it. It just doesn't seem as though the the show has is it seemed that it was so clearly about things initially. I mean, like, and I'm not saying a show has to have this super direct, hit-you-over-the-head purpose, but I mean, like, you know, the beginning of the, of the of this show, it was about, like, who is this Don Draper, this person who literally reinvented himself, you know, sort of as a metaphor for the way lots of people reinvent who they are, but he actually became someone different. And then we had yeah. this woman who was in a who, – who, because of the circumstances of time – Um, you know, had the the ability to become something great, but was slotted as a secretary and pretty much had to find ways to to fight through this, sort of using the passage of time as a ladder because things changed, and she took advantage of these things. And, you know, and, like, my favorite character to watch is Pete Campbell, but it was... I liked when I was always wishing I saw him more, you know? Um, And sometimes I think that... uh, that the desire, the popularity of this show uh, has kind of hurt it in some ways because I feel like the producers of the show are too aware of kind of the special thing that they made. And because of it, maybe they just think, well, I, I want to I answer every question and I want everyone to be part of this. And I, you know, I, uh, it's just, it's been disappointing to me.
1: That happened that happened in Lost too. I mm-hmm. think they I think they were reading the stuff written about them too much and it started to affect the decisions they made with the show. Like that David was Simon, that was
2: the first show where that became the principal problem they were having. Right. They, they were just too involved. Like I I'm not sure that that they're necessarily like reading recaps or whatever and, and like that's how it felt with Lost. This, oh, I, I, th- feel like I think he-
1: those guys were. I don't think there's any question. Those guys. were. I think those guys were reading everything that everybody wrote about that show.
2: Oh, definitely, definitely, yeah. because they were the. It was this weird scenario where the people making a show came out of the world of the kind of person who would be a commenter on a recap. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like they right. they were li- they were very much like their audience, and and so they it was exciting that this was happening. You know, at first, and then I just kind of destroyed the whole thing madman's different because it's like like matt weiner seems to have a real adversarial relationship with his audience like he doesn't seem to be pandering to anyone um but he can sense that that he's made sort of a a different kind of show that 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 seems to speak to people on many different levels and you know is going to be remembered and has this kind of interesting significance and has now sort of a political aspect to it. And because of that, maybe he feels like I can literally do whatever I want. Like it doesn't matter if, if, if this makes the show worse, I want this to happen. Like I want these things to happen. And in a way, I guess that you you respect someone for having that kind of artistic vision, but as the consumer, um, I wish that it was the way it used to be.
1: The first season is so carefully thought out and it's so smart and there's just all these little nuances within it. Like I remember there was one episode, Don and Betty and the kids, like they went and had a picnic at the park. Yeah. And they finished, they just left all the s*** in the park. <laughs> yeah. It was like a lot of stuff like that where you're watching it, but you're also going, oh yeah, that, that, isn't that crazy that stuff happened back then? And I feel like that, that part of and the show is going slip too.
2: Like not only did that like in a way that's actually how it was back then, you could just kind of throw your garbage away, but also yeah. like, is this essentially the story of the last forty years of America, where people like just you know are, are just now realizing that you can't take a culture and just sort of bows of it wherever? Um, it was it was that was the kind of thing that I think made people think this show is different. You know that, that there's something different happening in this that that it's it's entertaining, but uh, but I, I want to talk about it or whatever.
1: Yeah, yeah and then and then this last season, it feel a lot of that stuff feels forced to me. The way he did it the first couple of seasons was just so seamless. Just little little tweaks and nuances and nudges, and be like, oh yeah, oh that's great, oh that's so smart that they thought of that. And now I feel like I just I always judge stuff by like, oh my iPad out, and if I'm really into a show, I won't. Look at my phone and my iPad. I'm just locked in. These these last two half seasons have been, I, I've been like, you know, making fantasy baseball changes. <laughs> look at it. Look at it. Twitter <laughs> kind I, of shows uh, on. I'm not, I'm not really into it.
2: You know, I, I didn't, I didn't feel this way about the last half season. I was, you know, it, it, and this is like a weird thing to say, but even while I was watching the first few episodes of this season, I liked the show so much that I was trying to convince myself that I wasn't having this reaction, like I was. I, I I would I found it not as good, but I was like, well, maybe that just means I'm not getting something, and I I was kind of working up all of these like uh, explanations for why what I was taking in didn't seem as enjoyable. But particularly with this last one on on Sunday, I was just like, the show's not as good as it used to be. They're well, there's
1: one there's one other bigger problem that we didn't mention. Like you talked about how much you like Peggy's arc. And I think Peggy is the best character on the show right now. The most interesting one. Don, who was the heart of the show, who the first couple seasons was just the leading man in every respect, had the mystery. Almost every plot seemed to go through him somehow. And he's kind of tapped out. You gotta say, it's like, all right, Hey, there's another brunette that Don's going to fall in love with who can't fix him. And, I don't, you know, and it, and it's like, hey, the the advertising world's passed him by. You know, it kind of led to Matt Weiner sends him in this car just driving toward Wisconsin. I almost felt like because Matt Weiner didn't know what to do with him anymore. It's like, ah, I'll, I'll send him on a car trip. Uh, he'll go. Like, really, ultimately, what did that car trip accomplish? He goes to see if Diane the waitress is there. We already knew she had a ton of baggage and a bad you know, and was bad news and all that stuff. And he finds out and it was this whole arc that led to a moment that I already knew two episodes ago. I don't think they know what to do with them.
2: Yeah, well, you know, uh, you it mentioned Lost earlier, and you know, okay, Mad Men begins the 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 series with the central question being, you know, Don has this secret, he's someone else. Will other people find out? Will his wife find out? And what is it what does it mean that he's done this, you know? Um and then it was resolved. Okay. In the same way that Lost began with, like, here are these polar bears and these weird numbers and all, yeah. the, you know, it's like, um, you know, and they were never able to sort of reconcile that. Where, to the credit of Mad Men, they were. Like, they essentially had what seemed like the totality of a story. Like, his experience going from, you know, Whitman to Draper and, and then, you know, and, and then he was discovered and it turned out that no one really cared or whatever. And then they kind of just put that aside, and the show became something else that was just as good, you know. Um, but now, in this last stretch, you almost have to get back to that beginning problem. Like, you need him to read, you need the Draper character to be once again dealing with identity and the idea of actual identity. Not like, am I successful in my job, or you know, am I too old to be cool? Those are real minor issues. Like, he should be grappling with this idea of, if I'm not who I originally was, am I actually no one or whatever? And maybe that's what's going to happen. Maybe that somehow this trip west is the beginning of that. I feel like uh, I think my wife mentioned this, but like like make a point of he has a social security card with him when he, when he starts driving west. Is that true? Do you remember this? I don't remember this. I was probably okay. looking
1: down at my iPad.
2: Yeah, um, so so maybe that is going to occur, occur, and that's like that's what the end of this is going to be. But you know, there's not a hell of a lot of time left to deal with this stuff. You know, and well, while then, you other said
1: the the Don Peggy thing, it, like he's ne- they're never going to be in the same scene again. The, 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 they were the heart of the show. He's, now he's just going to be in the West Coast. I'd find that hard to believe. Well, and in the first season, they weren't often in the same room either.
2: You know, they. they you know, uh, and then there was that. You know, like, like the episode, the suitcase or whatever, that was really like like a, the real nexus of those two sort of storylines. But I mean, I don't want to be. I hate when people sort of like ruin shows. I do
1: pick it apart. No, I'm with you.
2: Yeah, I mean, I. I mean, I'm still. I'm going to watch these last two episodes when they happen. I'm going to miss the show when it goes off the air. But I just feel like if I if if I was writing about this show, I would have to say that it has been. Uh, so much less successful than everything it had done prior to
1: this. Well, I, I, the one thing that it's had, it's had, it's had some genuinely funny moments, which is the one thing it hasn't lost. Like Pete Campbell trying to get his son into the prep school and the 300 year history and, Yeah, and uh, Lou Avery. And, like there's been some really funny moments. It's one of the few shows that makes me laugh out loud when it's doing it right. But I, I think the one thing that he really whiffed on, and maybe it was just because of the characters and who they're around every day, was um, just ha- how things were changing for blacks from 1960 on. It's really just told through the story of, of a couple secretaries. It's like, it feels yeah. like it was juicy, it was juicy fodder there for something, and they kind of whiffed on it.
2: But yeah, that's a different kind of show then, though. You know, then you're. I mean, you're. You're really changing the show entirely because they're. They're essentially placing this in an entirely white world, and then. It, and then I, I think that there's a certain kind of person that goes like, they need to be addressing race or whatever, almost as if it almost works like a kind of reverse engineering, where a certain kind of person says, because this show is great, and because it seems to be dealing with important ideas, you must also include my important ideas. And if you don't that's you know that's a like a, like a, a fatal flaw uh, I, I, I think that this you know you, you saw this happen to a degree with girls uh, that that once there was an awareness that this show was having a larger cultural impact than logic would dictate uh, partially because just of the name of the show uh, because of the personality at the center um, sort of the newness of the language in it or whatever it was just you know, people suddenly were like, this show, is ma- it matters, you know, everyone's talking about this. So if it matters, it's got to deal with everything that's important. And that really hurt that show, too. Every yeah. attempt that they did to push in ideas that weren't organically sort of, you know, it's like, you know, they didn't have any black friends or whatever. I'm not sure characters like that necessarily would be spending a lot of time with black people. You know, I don't see that in New York. I see that this is is the most, you know, multicultural place in the country. And yet when I see people at bars sitting together, it seems to mirror more the first season of Girl
1: than subsequent stuff, you know. Well, here's what I would have done with Don Draper. I like, you know, Don can't keep his hands off the staff. He's he's goes. He always gets involved with women he shouldn't be with instead of like the 17th brunette who might secretly be bad news that he gets involved with, he, there could have been one episode where it was a black secretary and they kind of had a fling and then, and then we went into her world for an episode. I would have been so much more interested in that than Diana, the waitress is my point, I guess.
2: Well, Yeah. I mean, I, there's no, re- I guess there's no reason that couldn't have been done. They could have had certainly interesting conversations, but there again, it does. It it seems to sh- almost shift the show more. Um, into uh, like, a, like a like a a consciously political allegory for something, you know.
1: And so you I, think Don Don going back to Vietnam to join in the fight <laughs> would have been too would have been too much of a push? Too. <laughs> well, maybe they, maybe the last two would be great. I will say though, I don't like that we live in a culture where the showrunners give interviews with people. I hate it. I wish the showrunners never talked. It's, it's Well, like, you know, uh, I just it, wish they don't give any interviews. Just keep some mystery around it. I don't really care what you were thinking with episode four. Like, just shut up, go away. Let me let me uh, interpret the show that you created and the vision you had. Let me watch it and interpret it my own way. I don't need you to tell me how I should be thinking about the show. You know, it's interesting you mentioned this because before this
2: season of Mad Men, I was asked and very flattered to be asked to interview Matt Weiner and January Jones. Don Draper, and uh, and you know, Joan and Roger, you know, it's like on stage at the at the uh, Kennedy or like I think it was at the it was downtown is in Midtown somewhere I can't remember now. Um, it was on stage, you know, and uh, and I was interviewing these people on stage, and it was kind of difficult because like you know it's hard to ask actors about the motives for their character because they're sitting there with Matt Weiner who. Kind of put the script together. Their motives are the ones he designed, sort of. And right. So he did most of the talking. But you know what ended up being the most interesting exchange, in my view? I At one point, just sort of casually, I asked what, uh, how many members of the cast smoke in real life? You know, because they're always smoking on, on air. Yeah. I was like, how, you know. um, what do you think the response was?
1: I would say just one
2: weirder refused yeah. to answer really did not give the answer said that nobody could smoke on the show unless they had smoked in real life because he didn't want fake he didn't want you know any fake smoking you know because that does look you know preposterous kind yeah. of. but uh, uh, like refused to comment uh, and, and none of the uh, none of the participants. Commented on it. They they just it was it's odd. Like I wonder why that you know. And they, and they kind of acted almost as if it was an inappropriate personal question.
1: Wow, it's like Peds in the NBA. Just don't even bring it up. <laughs> Nobody can know. Uh, you're you're in a Game of Thrones too, right? Yeah, I watch it definitely. But that, I watch that in a totally different way. Why? Um,
2: well, because when Mad Men is good things happen in that show that make me think of my own life. Like, like sometimes there will be interactions between people in that program that seem close to me uh, in a way that, uh, that, you know, uh, almost makes me feel fortunate that I was able to see a fictional depiction of some, some, you know, problem or whatever. I never feel that way in Game of Thrones. And, uh, you know, Game of Thrones, I just sort of watch within the hour that it is on. And uh, you know, it's always entertaining, pretty much. Some storylines are better than others. Um, but uh, if I, if you asked me right now to really explain what's going on, I would use the fuzziest language possible. You know, what I mean, I, mean, I, I would. I, I have a, I have a broad idea of of what's supposedly happening here, but I don't even think it matters. Like yeah. I, I don't. It. it, it I don't. I feel it's pretty rare that, that there are moments in the show that fall apart unless you really know uh, the, the, the details of what's happening. And, you know, they're pretty good about having characters give one kind of over-expository line of dialogue uh, that doesn't seem super-forced it gives you a sense of like, oh, so this relates to that story
1: or whatever. You know? I, yeah, I'm with you. I watch it a different way. I don't, I think you could watch it one of two ways. Like Chris and Andy and, and uh, Jason and Grantland, like they're, they're in, you know, they, they would get a 100 on whatever quiz for the season of game of Thrones. So I was like, who's this guy? Where, where is this guy? I'm just, I just watch it, you know, and I know that, Hey, there's the lady of the light, <laughs> you know? Hey, there's Jon Snow. Hey, there's the there's the uh, the girl who's Arya, grown up, trying to trying to make things happen. Hey, there's Queen Cersei. That's just kind of how I watch it.
2: Yeah. Okay. This is like a this is going to sound maybe more insulting than it is. It's not my intention, but like, here's the thing: like Game of Thrones is an amazingly put together narrative. I mean, I haven't read those books, but I have no doubt that they're great. I think that the the transfer to the television show has been done pr- a great job because it's just so rare that you see people who love books also love like like the film or movie or the t v show about them as much as fans of the book seem to you know, but right. to me there's a certain like lack of necessity to really know what's going on because this is still some. Goofball fantasy, right? I mean, right. there's dragons flying around. There's giant, like, like <laughs> I don't really care, you know. It's like it's gonna. If I, if I figure out exactly what's going on, it's still like this pretty absurd scenario. So it doesn't seem to to require. I mean, you can certainly watch it in that way, like the people who really get into Star Wars and the alternative galaxies and all that. It, I think that's that if that it, it, that gives pleasure to a lot of people and there's certain things not like I'm not like kind of a like a weirdo about things that I get obsessed with stuff and learn more than I need to or whatever but when I watch Game of Thrones I don't feel as though my lack of understanding about what's happening in this completely fake world uh, really
1: matters. It it does a really good job of introducing new characters or or a character that we've seen, but then is all of a sudden getting a little more shine. And within like two scenes, it's just so concise and well done how they do it. Like the new King, you know, I, I didn't really have an opinion on him before this episode. And then, uh, you know, it's like, uh-oh, uh-oh, he, might, he might, this kid might be a peacetime president. I'm not sure this kid's going to be able to handle it. <laughs> There's really only two scenes, but they're so smart with how they cast the show. And how they write it that I really enjoy it. I just kind of turn my brain off and watch it. I know. Yeah,
2: I mean, I follow, I guess, the Lannister stuff pretty closely because those are all such great characters.
1: I mean, yeah. Cersei
2: is an amazing character and an amazing actress. Peter yeah. Dinklage is very good, and, you know, it's like, you know, everybody involved there is good, and their interaction is so great that it almost, it's almost like their ability sort of to emote and deliver their lines sort of makes what's going on there more clear. Like, I I understand that family in a way I don't understand the other families as much. Um, And the other thing that is just great about that show, I guess, is that it's a fantasy, but they really get into the idea of, I guess, this is kind of an oxymoron, but, like, realistic fantasy. Yeah. Like, it's in a fantasy world, but they were really, uh, uh, like, uh, conscious to get kind of into the nuts and bolts of it like how gross it would be to live in this fantasy world. Yeah. I think the violence helps with this in that, uh, that like it, uh, it, it sort of makes a supernatural place feel like Detroit or something. You
1: know? Well, like when I watch Louie, I'm like watching every morsel of every scene. Like I'm just fascinated by Louis. I'm fascinated by him. I, I'm really interested in the choices he makes each episode and what the reasons are. And, and he's also pretty quiet about the show itself, so you never really know what he's thinking when he's doing episodes. And for me, that's like a totally... Like, if I had the same concentration I have for Game of Thrones that I'd do for Louis, I'd probably know all 50 people that are going on. But Louis is also an easier show to watch. It's one person, it's 22 minutes or 25 minutes.
2: Well, and- I, oh, but the, the other thing about Louis episodes go into them, you have no idea what the show is going to be. Yes. Like, it might not be funny at all. It might be hilarious. It might seem like a 1976 sitcom. You know, it's like you you have no idea what it's going to be like. Um, I think for pure funniness right now, though, I think the funniest show is probably Veep. Yeah, I don't watch that that one. Everybody wants me to watch that one. Well, it's been good in the past, but I just think that the jokes per square inch this year are just unstoppable. I mean, like it's almost like the the height of Thirty Rock, where jokes yeah. come super fast. But the difference is, these jokes are incredibly mean. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, Thirty Rock was was a playful show. You know, it was like it was it was you know charming, sort of. You know, um, the things people say in this show are just incredibly mean spirited. Um. Silicon Valley is also really good now. I mean, those those two shows. I think no one watches them live because they're watching Mad Men. But uh, but uh, I, I they I think that they're really you know really great things. You know, I'm trying to think of what else I'm
1: watching. What was your what was your takeaway on the Sinatra doc? I know you watched it.
2: Oh, I watched it. Um, well, okay. Uh, <laughs> here's something that's just a kind of a reflection of my stupidity. I thought it was a two-part documentary. So I watched the first docu- part of the documentary, what I thought was the first part, and I was like, this is great. Now the second part's going to go into the real unseemly stuff. And then I was like, oh, my DVR didn't tape the second part. And then I realized there was no second part. That was the whole thing. So uh, I well, there felt... There was a
1: second part. He, they, did too. they did, too. Was, it was four hours. See, okay, then great. Then I missed the second part.
2: Now, what, what was in the second part?
1: Oh, the second part was so much better than the first part.
2: Ah, okay. Well, now, oh, now I've got to reverse my whole position. I thought that there was that there was going to be two parts, and then there wasn't.
1: No, second part's really. I, I liked it more. I mean, I thought it was probably forty-five minutes too long. The documentary. I think he could have done it in three hours and. I feel the same way about documentaries that I do with autobiographies. I never care what happened to the person when they were, like, age zero to age 17. Like, just take care yeah. of when things get interesting. I always skip that. But uh, once he gets to, like, Rat Pack and um, his son getting kidnapped, all that's like, it okay, really Okay, well, great. Off. Now i got to oh, go yeah. back
2: and find this. Well, now, I, okay, Then my, now my opinion has reversed back to my initial take, <laughs> which was that, uh, that, that maybe this – documentary is going to be what I thought it was going to be. When did the, the second one air the following, like, the next day or something?
1: Yeah, I think so. Okay,
2: I, I I must have thought it was going to air the following Sunday, and when I saw it wasn't there, I was like, ah, oh, I'm not up on stuff like that anymore. Like, I don't follow the details the way I used to, hence me calling you had a child. Floyd Mayweather Floyd Merriweather, you know? You had a child. What? You had a child. I do have a child, but then I just, I, I'm just less, uh, I, I, I just keep up on things like that way less.
1: What's the best book you read in 2015? The best book I read in 2015?
2: Um, let me think. Um, what's, uh, what, let me you don't out. have what answer. Is, this is a tough one. I cause I'm writing a book right now, so almost all the books I'm reading are related okay. to the one I'm writing. So I'm not really sitting down a lot and reading books straight through. Have you talked
1: um, about what your book's about?
2: Um. <laughs> Yeah, let's not talk about it yet. Um, That's what uh, I missed
1: when I did the NBA book. I loved, uh, I loved reading all the books that I had to research for the NBA book. So some of them were so terrible, like Bob Pettit's autobiography. You know, Rick Barry's autobiography. It's it's you go well, into that per- world. Your perception of books changes so much
2: when you read that way because yeah. you know when I'm reading books for research purposes, I don't care about the writing at all. You know, I just want information that I haven't seen before, or that clearly illustrates the thing I'm trying to understand. Um, so, you know, when you're when you're reading a book for pleasure, it's, you you know, you'll be like, oh, this you know, this book had you know, it's kind of interesting, but the writing is kind of hacky or whatever. I never feel that way when all I care about is the content. In some ways, and it makes me think like, is this actually how I should always be reading? Like, should I, should I always be focused on literally things I have not seen before or that nicely explain something, simply explain something in a way that's totally detached from, like, the skill of the, the person putting it together? Because that's so, maybe just kind of an illusion.
1: So just idiot guides and oral histories. Just read that could be your next six months of Internet reading. <laughs> so, um, over, all stuff that cuts stuff down to the nuts and bolts. I always find, like, I read on the Internet, I read mostly for information. I'm just trying to learn well, stuff.
2: Yeah, because people on the internet read vertically
1: instead of horizontally.
2: Yeah. So if you're reading on the internet and something is just running in place, you just move your head down to the next chunk, like you know. But when you read books, of course, you read, read horizontally. So you're kind of like I. Oh, well, here's Okay, this is I don't know if this is the best book I read this year. I just finished. This is kind of like uh, people listening to this podcast might be interested. I just read this book that's coming out about Van Halen called van halen rising about the early days of van halen and it's written by this academic and i gotta say it is pretty rare to find such a comprehensive prehistory of any band like even like you know the stones or something some canonical band so when it's about van halen it's just it's nuts i mean like the amount of he he. It appears that he interviewed several people whose relationship to Van Halen is just that they were kind of rich kids in the Pasadena area who had parties when their parents weren't home. Like right. that's like the amount of, of 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 that he gets into in this. And uh, there's a lot about sort of Eddie Van Halen technological know-how, like how he. You know, he liked he when he played his guitar. He needed the amplifier to be all the way to ten to get the tone he wanted. But of course, if he did that, you couldn't hear the bass and the drums and the vocals. So, like, he took apart a dimmer switch from his parents' living room and built in a dimmer switch into the amp so that way he could have it up to ten, but could dim it so that it was all the way open, but yet not as loud. I mean, just
0: wow. the,
2: the, the whole period of, you know, like him and, and, and you know, guy from Boston, Schultz, all those guys, it was like the, the late seventies were an interesting period. I think this is true maybe for like cars too, where it was the last time that you could figure out a car engine or an ele- electrical system or whatever, just because you sort of had a knack for how these things worked. And you could just take a phone apart, kind of put it back together and learn these things. You know, now that's impossible. Now you open up a car, you know, like the only person who can work on your car is an actual mechanic. because He's got to hook it into a computer that says everything, you know. But it, it, from like up until like the early part of the 80s, it seems as though this was still possible. That guys could sort of, or anyone, women too, could sort of uh, become like natural experts in the construction of the instrument they were using. And Man. then it, it created all the, you know, and that's like there's like Van Halen would not be the band they were if not for his ability to sort of hook up wires and stuff like that. You know?
1: People seem to think he might have been a genius in a lot of ways. Who? Eddie.
2: Well, it, it two ways for sure <laughs> playing guitar, definitely, and then oh, yeah. possibly designing guitars. But he's definitely a genius in one way.
1: Well, you know, they're they're a band that YouTube has really helped them. Because it was right around the time when people started, I don't know, bootleg videos and all that stuff. And their stuff from the late 70s and early 80s that's on on YouTube, it was just just a great band. I I would love to watch a documentary on those guys.
2: Well, it's it's tough to do because, you know, they they, they just don't like each other. And Van Halen's, like this book he talks to Michael Anthony is the only guy from the band he talks to. And really what Michael Anthony offers, it would almost bend to the author's advantage, just keep him entirely because it just seems like this weird thing where there's a few, a few portions of this interview with the bass player, but um,
1: they, they shoved him the, out, right? Michael Anthony. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Now it's his son plays bass now. Yeah. His son plays bass. um there, I mean, there's, there's just a lot of, very interesting details about Van Halen in general. The, the idea that like Eddie Van Halen would never record anything in the studio. He couldn't play live. So like when you, when you hear the record, it, it's just him playing. Like it's not, it's not a ton of overdubs and all of these things. And so therefore when you see him live, he can actually do it. It just, you know, and then they're, they're very they good. They got the vocalist. He's like kind of the, the ultimate rock vocalist in every way, except for the actual vocals. Right, which, you know, so you watch, when you watch Bootlegs of Van Halen it's, it's weird, because it's like everything in between the songs is awesome and the songs start and they're awesome and then it's like, uh-huh, uh, then the song is over and it's awesome again
1: Yeah, that is true it, 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 I don't know what the rankings would be for greatest vocalists and, and then, you know, as it drops down drops down, drops down but just for Pure Pipes he was way down there He really was.
2: yeah, I mean, you know, and and on the record, he's pretty good. Like, you know, because he, I think that he's a real, like, I think David Lee Roth is actually a real workaholic. And both his autobiography and this book and pretty much everything else about Van Halen, like, there's, you know, there's two sides to him, sort of the side that makes it, where he expresses in public where he almost tries to seem like, hey, I'm just happy to be here. I don't even know how I got here type thing. And then yeah. everything behind it. Um, so I think he would work really, really hard in the studio to get like one one good take. Like, you know, and that would be it. But even, you know, the Ted Templeman, the guy who produced all those records, um, when he started producing Van Halen, he and this is in this book, he, he basically says that, you know, even then he was like, I want to get Sammy Hagar in this band because he had produced uh, the band Montrose, which Sammy yeah. Hagar was the frontman for. So he had always, you know, which is a weird. Like so, from the very onset, they were like, "There's going to be problems with the, with the vocal. But on the records, there really isn't. I mean, it's uh, because the the lyrics also are pretty well written. I think that people overlook how kind of funny some of the Van Halen lyrics are, yeah. um, and they're delivered in this stylized way that makes anyone else singing those songs seem wrong. Like, in many ways, he was a much more difficult vocalist to replace than a lot of other bands uh, who might have tried the same thing, you know?
1: Yeah. All right. I have to go pop like seven cold pills. Um, Chuck, we'll check in with you maybe after Mad Men. Or maybe, maybe after so. this goes. Maybe we'll just do a little special... Madman, I, I I actually think that the last two episodes are going to be good, but I'm interested to hear
2: Oh, I, yeah, I'm looking forward to them and they might be, and I think it will be You know, probably I, I, It's not, there's not like a It's unlikely there'll be some super satisfying conclusion because that would sort of go against how the show has
1: always worked, but Yeah. Yeah. Alright. Thanks, as always. Okay. A pleasure. Bye-bye. Talk to you soon.
2: Target to set off.
1: Thank you for downloading The B.S. Report with Bill Simmons.
2: Too
0: much
1: fun. Check out more podcasts at the iTunes Music Store or at PodCenter at ESPNRadio.com.
0: Peace out.